Hey everyone, welcome to our event. This event is brought to you by Data Talks Club, which is a community of people who love data. It's been like two years since I updated these slides. I really have to do this, but like the description is still there and it's still the same. So if you want to find out more about the events we have, there is a link in the description, go there, click on that link and you'll see all the events we have in our pipeline, which includes another event today about prompt engineering. So if you want to learn about uh, how to create prompts that work better than that prompts, I'm very bad at prompt engineering. And it's not important for today's discussion, but like check the, the events. Then this button looks differently, but I'm sure you'll find it. So if it still says subscribe, you need to click on that button. So you get subscribed to everything that is happening on this channel. So you'll get notified about future streams like the one we have today. And we have an amazing Slack community where you can hang out with other data enthusiasts. So join that too. This week we'll talk about building an open source data company. And not just building, but uh, it's not the first time we have our guest, Adrian, on this podcast. And before we spoke about being a data freelancer. So we'll talk about building an open source company as a data freelancer in the past, I guess. So yeah, the special guest we have today is Adrian. Adrian started working in data quite some time ago in 2012 for brilliant startups. Then he joined a corporation and quickly found out that this is not what he likes. So then he decided to freelance. He freelanced for quite some time. And we have another interview with Adrian, as I mentioned, where he talks quite a lot about his experience. But today we invited Adrian again to talk about his, what happened after freelancing. And this is also a question that uh, many people think, okay, like now I can do freelance, but maybe I don't want to do this forever. What's next? So today we'll talk about that. So welcome again to our podcast. Thank you, Alexei. Yeah. And the questions for today interviews were prepared mostly by Adrian, but also Johanna helped. So Johanna always helps. Thanks, Johanna. And I see you here in the chat. So big heart. Thanks for doing that. And yeah. Let's start. So before we go into our main topic of building an open source data company, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Sure. I just want to first give a mention that actually the questions prepared are thanks to Yorit in cases uh, in the audience who basically asked me these questions last week and I was able to just mostly use most of them. Who? A data engineer, Yorit. I'm not sure if he's uh -huh. uh, chat right now. Anyway, okay. yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right. So as you were saying, I started working in data uh, in 2012. I started freelancing some five, six years ago, right? I've already stopped by now. And that was an amazing change of pace from employment, mostly because it gave me a lot of autonomy and it uh, allowed me to really consider what I want to do with my life and with my time and also putting me in the position where I was able to save and invest which also opens up, let's say, different chapters and options in life, right? So um, I would say I was on the freelancing path, which I think is entrepreneurial for about five years, time in which I had quite a few learnings about what could be the next step. And uh, yeah, this is how we got here. And uh, I would guess the next logical step for me was uh, taking more risk, actually. So looking into how I can invest my time better than uh, just freelancing. And you were freelancing as a data engineer, right? 
Yes. I mean, I did all kinds of things because I tried to kind of figure out what's interesting to people, what's interesting to me. And one of the things that I was doing as a freelancer was data engineering, of which I would say maybe half of the things were first-time setups, so commonly called build and hire, where you build out a data warehouse and hire a team. The other half, I would say, just generic data engineering projects. And when I wasn't doing data engineering, I was doing a little bit of consulting. So basically how you should do your data engineering more or less, or how you should structure your team. And for me, freelancing is exchanging time for money. So the, the image I have in my head is like a company needs somebody. And then you say, okay, I charge 100 euros per hour, or like, I don't know, a thousand per day, whatever. Like you say, this is how much you take. And then they say, okay. And then they say, we hire you for three months to do this thing. But I remember that in our interview, in the previous one, you also talked about other things, not just that, but there are like different kinds of sorts of freelancing where sometimes it's more. So maybe a company needs to build a data warehouse and you say like, okay, like for me alone is difficult, but then I have like my friends who can also join. And then instead of charging you per hour, I will charge you per project. And then it's more entrepreneurial, right? So it's not like just give me hundred euros and I'll just sit there and then calculate how many hours I spend. But you say like, this is the problem you have. This is the solution I can provide. And this is what I need in exchange, right? So then it's kind of like, it's a bit different. So you more like provide a solution to the problem rather than just sell your time, right? And then for me, it was already quite entrepreneurial. Exactly. So a customer typically already wants to know how much they're roughly going to pay for what they get. They don't actually care about your hourly rate generally. They care about final outcome and what it costs them. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you worked as a freelancer sometime. Yes. Although like we, we talked about like all these different kinds of freelancing where you just exchange time for money, where you sell projects, where you can bring your friends to help you and so on. And like, why, why did you want to do something else? Like what triggered you to change from, cause it was already like, it looked like you're already making like a lot of, uh, how to say impact that it can be quite satisfying when it's not just, when you don't just exchange time for money, you also, you know, when you get paid by delivering a project, it's different, can be pretty fulfilling, I guess. It was. So I can't complain about freelancing. I really enjoyed it. And I still think it's the, let's say, best lifestyle thing that somebody can do. So compared to employment or compared to founding, it's probably the role where you have most autonomy. So if you are actually looking to also have a holistic life and invest in other areas, that's a pretty good position to be in. Holistic life. Yes. It's like when you can go fish on Wednesday. Go fish on Wednesday, for example. You can decide every day what you're doing more or less. Of course, you need to be civilized and do it within the boundaries of other people working with you. But you do have a lot of autonomy and freedom. And I would say I enjoyed that really much, but there's always, uh, you know, something in the back of the head that goes like, okay, I want more, I want different. And once you do something for a while, at least for me, it starts to get boring. And I have to say that, you know, I built a lot of data warehouses and at some point it gets really old. And of course, when you are freelancing, people know you for what you do. So they will offer you more of the same work, right? And uh, 
what I was doing in the later stages of my freelancing was also subcontracting, right? So like you were describing, a uh, customer has a need and I didn't have some of the skills to deliver some of those things, but I could subcontract someone to help us to deliver. And I did that. And then this changes your role a little bit from a single contributor where you have a lot of autonomy to more like an agency manager where suddenly you have a lot more communication and a lot more, let's say, answering lines, right? So your autonomy goes down, your revenue goes up, but uh, I would say happiness also went down for me when starting in that direction. So, you know, this basically brings it to the question of what next, right? More of the same gets old. And if you look into how to improve things, okay, could go in the agency direction and make it bigger business, but that doesn't seem fun, personally. Because like in case of agency, you would actually have a company and then you would hire people and then you would negotiate with potential customers what yes. to deliver and then people from your agency go and work, right? Yes, and it's a different business at that point because it's not only about you and your personal choices, it's about, you know, now you have employees and you have some responsibilities around that. You need to make ends meet, right? Because, you know, if you have an unpleasant customer, it's easy to fire them. When you're a freelancer, you just go to a different project. But uh, when you have a whole team of people and you need to keep them employed, it becomes more difficult. Hmm. And um, yeah, also managing the flow of people, it's a completely different job fundamentally. And there's also, let's say, a question of incentive, right? When you are personally a freelancer, it's quite easy to just be aligned with your own system of values. Whereas when you are owning an agency and you have to pay the bills for the people that you've hired, I would say you start to have multiple responsibilities, some of which might conflict directly with your values, right? So you might have to work with a customer for the good of your company, where you might not choose to work with this customer otherwise. And that's one of the potential next steps for a freelancer, for a solo freelancer. So when you're a solo freelancer and you want to like do something bigger, agency is one of the options, but with all the pros and cons we discussed, pros yeah. be having more money, cons, I guess, like all these things that you mentioned. For some, it might be fun, but like not for everyone. And then another option would be creating a product, right? Yeah, pretty much. So you could always go and do something more esoteric uh, that's different from core freelancing. You could go build a product on your own, but that sounds pretty risky. Or you could go down, let's say, the path of creating a company because fundamentally, I wanted to build a product. But in order to enable making that happen, you need to align multiple incentives with that, right? So if I just want to build something by myself in isolation for nobody's benefit, I can do that. But if you want things to end up in front of people, if you want them to be of a high quality, if you want people to help you, it's a different game. And that's no longer, let's say the resource drain to make something like this happen is more than the effort of one person. Also on the skills, right? So. Okay. but how? Like Usually you don't just wake up and, okay, now I quit freelancing, let's try to build a product. Right. It happens gradually, right? So there is something you saw that you do over and over again, right? So I was telling you about building data warehouses over and over again, yeah. and it does get pretty old. And I would say the reason why I didn't enjoy it anymore was 
that it's not really challenging, right? The technical challenge isn't high if you've been a data engineer for a few years, and then it's just a people problem. And it's kind of the same problems on repeat, you know, educating stakeholders that total march, that doesn't mean anything and you need an actual metric, educating stakeholders that number of customers means different things to different teams. And uh, I can give an example where I was done building a data warehouse technically in two weeks. And then we spent two months to get everyone on the same page as to what the customer is and which ones they're tracking and which ones they're reporting on. It was literally mind blowing. So what happened for me was I thought, okay, I don't want to do the technical challenge for me is easy to solve. But what I realized is that it's not easy for everyone else on the team. And so data engineers are often a bottleneck in organizations. And what I was looking in my work of building and hiring was always to empower others uh, to take over, right? It wasn't a game where I wanted to be the centerpiece of data engineering for the next five years at this company. So in order to do that, I was looking for easy ways in which other people can take on the engineering role. And like I said, I think it's a pretty low complexity role in terms of technical requirements, but it's not necessarily easy to learn and to get there. So if you actually have everything available to you in terms of such as boilerplate code, then you could just use it as a data person and you don't need all the engineering to happen. So this is how the product idea actually came to be, which I guess this is more or less what you were asking, right? Yeah, I was curious, like, what exactly did you see that you thought, okay, like, so many companies have this problem. So if I put the solution to this problem in a box, and then instead of selling my services to these companies, it's, I say, okay, this is the solution. And you can actually use this solution on your own. You don't need me. Just use this solution. Yes. Right. So I can give you some examples. So you have a lot of really smart people working in the data field right now, and even more smart people not working in the data field and wanting to. So you have all these new generation Python users that, you know, they're brilliant. They were exposed to programming languages earlier than the rest of us. And they've had opportunities and chances that we dream of sometimes that we had ourselves. And uh, they're uniquely positioned to be able to solve these kinds of problems, but they need the right tools because they don't have five years to develop the engineering skills and learnings that it might take for a data engineer. So uh, what I noticed was a few patterns such as these Python people can easily use pandas and they can get some data from an API. They can use pandas to SQL to load some data. So fundamentally, the skills are there. It's just about the in-depth engineering knowledge that isn't quite there. And there was another common anti-pattern, people basically just throwing JSON strings into databases. So this happens quite frequently. and. The reason why people do this is because they have a problem and this is a solution, right? No one's just being evil or shitty about code quality. So basically I thought, okay, we need some good dev tooling to help us do what these people are trying to do and that they're doing in a not engineering good way to help them basically do it faster, better, harder, stronger, right? So, so from what I heard from you, I know a bit about the product the tool you work on. So, so what I heard is when you have a data warehouse, you usually need, you don't just have it for the sake of having it. You need to put some data in it, right? 
And then you have a bunch of JSON, JSON data coming from endpoints or from somewhere. Yeah. And then like you need to take this JSON data and put it into a data warehouse or some sort of database. And the easiest way of doing this is just take the JSON as is and put it, I don't know, to Postgres, because in Postgres you have this JSON field, right? Or whatever. And I think like all the major data warehouses can just you can just put JSON there and then you can declare it as a complex type or you can yeah. just string and most what people were doing is naturally you have this type you have a bunch of json hmm, like the easiest way is just take the json and put it in the database right because not everyone knows that uh, maybe it's not the best solution but it kind of works around right so you saw that you saw that people can actually do that so they can use python but this is not the best thing to do for a data warehouse because it's expensive and then you don't put you just put complex objects there because it's more difficult to filter, I guess. Yeah, it has many problems from cost, maintenance, robustness, and so on. So you saw that and you thought, okay, like, what if there was a tool that could just help them easily enable them to do that? And then, like, instead of having a bunch of JSON fields in the database, they have something proper, right? Yeah, basically, databases like typed flat tables. So for example, JSON doesn't have date time, right? So when you load JSON to a database, you're creating a date time string, kind of. You're just creating strings. And then somebody has to come and say, this is a timestamp. Let me extract it from the JSON. Let me give it the right type. And now we can actually use it, right? So I tried to kind of jump over these steps so we don't have to have a human that is manually guessing what each data type is and unpacking this data and making it clean. So basically, this tool that I was working on uh, facilitates just taking unknown JSON uh, data and putting it in a tabular relational format in the database. So I say relational because JSON can have substructures such as lists within the JSON, which you cannot represent, you know, within like a simple type. So you need to either break it out into a new table or keep it as some kind of array. So, you know, databases like tables, not arrays. And this is kind of the idea. It just makes it easy. Um, you have, let's say, the declarative ways of loading. Like I can replace, I can append, I can upsert or merge the data. And you also have, let's say, a lot of tweaks that data engineers care about that I won't really go into a lot of details here, but you know, you put the JSON in the database, but the data engineer will worry about, okay, what's the distribution key? What's the I don't know, primary key performance considerations. Maybe I want a data contract, things like that. And from what I heard, so you said that people who are not necessarily experienced data engineers, but know within Python can just take these JSONs and throw them into the data warehouse. But also if I'm an experienced data engineer, this is kind of repetitive. Like I have this bunch of uh, JSON files or JSON data, and then I have to parse them think, okay, like for this, because it's nested, I need to create uh, this table and this table, this is one-to-many relationship. And then like you spent a week just yeah. parsing this JSON structure and creating a table structure and then doing all the mapping. Like even if you have experience, it's kind of repetitive. It's like then you join another company and then have the same problem and you join another company as a freelancer and again, they have the same problem. So it feels super repetitive, right? Because you need to do the same thing over and over again. Even if you do it correctly, like as a data engineer, you still end up like doing a lot of stuff 
again and again. Yes, and ultimately, correctly, you know, it's a matter of best guess, right? Because when you're inferring types from a weekly type data like JSON, you could be wrong. And, you know, there's nothing preventing JSON from sending you a number today and a string tomorrow. JSON doesn't have internally any kind of type consistency between records. So uh, you want something that also reduces maintenance because, you know, we can guess what the data is, but we might find out we are wrong two days later when the data doesn't load. So we don't want to do that. And the more data you have, the more you try to avoid this typically, and you try to curate it up front, which generates a whole another set of problems. Now you have to talk to stakeholders and to people, and it takes so much longer. Was it born when you saw this pattern and you wanted to solve this problem for clients faster? And that's why you created this tool? Or it was you realized that there is a pattern, you stopped freelancing and you focused on the tool? It's a little more complex than that. So I was already building some kind of data loading tool before. It's called Growth Full Stack. It's something like a five trend for a specific vertical. And there I had the pleasure, you know, to play with the concept a little bit. So, okay, you have this side about what is the right way for taking something to people so they can use it. And then you have the building side and how that could be and how it should be. So I would say it took me some time to actually formulate some stronger opinions about how it could be built. And once we started building it, you know, there's multiple layers of abstractions of how you could build something like this. It could be built in a way that engineers love it, or it could be built in a way that any Python person can understand. And usually to reach these good abstractions, you might have some ideas, but they're not going to be the best, right? You want to validate them. So we did a kind of incremental process where we first built an engine and with this engine, we started building pipelines, getting people's feedback, seeing what people could do or couldn't do. And then, you know, we figured out we need to simplify this and created another, another layer of abstraction on top to enable the Python users to just easily use this. Mm -hmm. And you said once we started building it and you used we, so who are we? Who are you talking about? So you and uh, some other people? Me and my co-founders, yes. Should I talk about them or? Yeah, I'm just curious, like, cause like you were a freelancer, I guess you worked with other freelancers, but like, how did you two met? Like, how did you actually find each other and decided, okay, like, let's focus on solving this problem. So it's a classic story. We, we met at work, right? On my last project, basically the guy that hired me had been working for this company for six years and he had previously founded some companies. And um, basically I ended up working with him to build this growth full stack solution that I was mentioning. And uh, so we actually had one year of working together. We had also worked together on some smaller projects before. So like I went with him on a consulting and sales trip to Poland, for example, to sell this data engineering solution. So I kind of realized, okay, I can work with this person. We can communicate well. And, uh, you know, this person, so I'll just call him Matt because his name is Matt. Matt also had founding experience from before. So mm -hmm. myself personally, as a freelancer, I wouldn't have jumped headfirst into all of this founding chaos without some kind of guidance. So this was a good opportunity. And uh, the rest of my team are basically people with whom Matt has founded before. 
So there's Marcin, who's uh, our technical genius, who's basically who very much likes to hack things and figure out the simplest ways and the most elegant ways or esoteric sometimes. And there's also Anna, who uh, joined in a more limited capacity originally to just help us with operations like registering the company, talking to the lawyers, figuring out, you know, all these things kind of. Mm -hmm. Okay. So before you started getting people on board, Anna, and I don't remember the other person, Matt, like you wanted to know that this is the right thing to do, right? Like before starting a company. Mm -hmm. Like, how did you decide that this is what I actually want to do? Like, uh, let's start a company, let's start getting money, let's start hiring people. Because it's a big investment, right? Yeah, it's a big investment and it's a complex decision. So I would say for myself, I looked at it from an entrepreneurial perspective and I thought, okay, I'm a freelancer. There's so much that can be done with freelancing. And I want to invest more. And as a freelancer, you get actually to earn a lot of money. And I had the opportunity to learn about investment. And when you are investing, there are, let's say, multiple tiers of risk you could take. So you could buy a house and rent it out and make maybe 1% per year, right? Or you could buy an apartment, make maybe 3% per year, or maybe you could invest in the stock market. You take more chances, you might earn more. Or if you want to really go crazy, you could go into angel investing, which is, you know, very high risk and high rewards. So sometimes it has a return of maybe 30% per year, statistically. And the next step would be, you know, founding, where you go all in on uh, something that's quite high risk and, of course, also possibly high rewards. So this is, in a way, my way of investing, in a way that I was able to. In another way, you know, because I met Matt, and this team, it was kind of like the perfect opportunity to go down a path that they were already familiar with, making things much easier to get it right. So also having worked with them before, I had the understanding that this is a group of people that I can work with. Because probably when founding, when choosing co-founders, one of the most important things is it's kind of like a family in the sense that now you're bound together for the next six years or something, and you will always need to figure out solutions to problems. If you don't, your problems will only grow. Right. So I knew that this is the right team to do it with. And yeah, the word investing that I used when asking you about that question, I meant more like time investing, but interesting. It's interesting that you came from that angle. So you can invest like in a house, in an apartment, angel investing or just starting a company yes i could have kept mm -hmm. freelancing and earning money mm -hmm. and investing it right so because yeah. like i was uh, this is where i was going with that for a freelancer probably it's a more natural thing to do as a next step like one thing is agency and then another thing is building a product and then you can not necessarily see it as investment but more like okay this is the next thing i do but also you need to kind of push money there, not kind of, but you actually have to put money there. Otherwise, uh, yeah, you need to eat something, right? And then like probably getting the first version. And this so, is something we should talk about that, right? So how did you, so we all humans need to eat. We need to live somewhere, right? And it's uh, in the modern world, it costs money. So how did you solve this problem of, you know, finding something to eat and a uh, place to sleep while, you know, being a 
because oh, you bootstrapped at the end, uh, at the beginning, right? So you had your own capital, and of that capital you kind of worked, right? Or how did it happen? Yeah. So basically, when you found a company, you need to start it with some capital. Then you know there's your cost of living, which I would say is moderate, a moderate concern in the sense that it's one of the costs that you will incur. And then there is, you know, cost of company operation, because ultimately you will want to do something with that company and just keeping it with some money in the bank and not spending that money doesn't actually get you anywhere. What you want to do is invest and have access to build things. So you also want to get some money into the company. So what we did was literally for one year, we didn't actually have a job or a salary. So we just, you know, uh, lived on savings. One of the advantages that, you know, the cost of living in Berlin is not too high. So um, it's manageable if you manage to save up a little bit. Every month when I pay my... It gets worse. Yeah, like I'm almost crying, like how expensive compared to like, I don't know, eight years ago. Of course, yeah. like it's not expensive compared to New York. This was also happening when we were building this company and costs kept going up like crazy. And I was like, you know, I had a plan and that definitely not, not able to stick to it. Okay. So it was definitely a little bit stressful. Luckily, there was still work to be found in the market. So at least we were able to earn money into the company a little bit to fund our operations. So we basically, you know, I told you that first we built an engine. So we used this engine with design partners, which also paid us for the work where, you know, we were able to get some feedback and also uh, a little bit of funding for our company. So you were solving the problems they had and building the two at the same time, right? And because you were providing services, they were paying you, right? Yes. So it was like kind of freelancing in a way, right? Or more like... As a company, yeah. you provided services to them. Exactly. It was kind of like freelancing in the sense that I was actually the only one directly involved in these projects mostly. And, uh, you know, the difference I would say for me is that somebody else was issuing the invoice for some other entity mostly. But what was happening was we got to actually test our tool with real data. And we also had some really good learnings, which potentially could be worth more, right, in uh, the prospect of a company building than the little money that we got from these consulting gigs. But I guess uh, this is not, uh, you cannot do it that much. Like there, there is some money, you earn some money from this activity when you consult, and then you get money and you keep money in the company to fund yourself, to pay yourself and other people's salary, pay for the office, right? But that yes. is probably not enough, right? So you need to get more money. What we did in the first year, actually, we squatted offices. So as you know, financial situation was changing. So a lot of companies, basically, investors invested in them at, let's say, 40x their yearly revenue value, where 20x would be normal. So when the, let's say, mini crash came, Lots of investors basically either have the investment or double the goal, right, to get it back on track. And what this did was literally companies were forced to let go of half of their staff. And unfortunately for them, but fortunately for us, there were lots of, let's say, empty rooms around the Berlin offices at the time. So we were able to use these rooms without paying for rent, which was super helpful. That's why you said squatted. 
Yes, exactly. They knew that you were sitting there, right? The company knew that you were sitting in yes, the Yes, <laughs> yes. It, it wasn't like Occupy Berlin or anything. And uh, we also didn't pay ourselves a salary because, you know, that wouldn't have been realistically possible. So, you know, pressure did increase at some point and we had to raise a pre-seed round. This was happening around the time when we were creating also a workshop for validation. I think you remember about that one because I was asking you if I can recruit some testers from your Slack group. Did you recruit anyone? Yes. So I can tell you basically what happened was we had this engine and we wanted to figure out how to make a better interface for this engine that any Python user could use. So around the time, we were actually also raising a pre-seed round, which was quite chaotic, but we created this uh, three-day workshop, how to build a pipeline in six hours, so two hours a day. And we had some 60 people join us, and to our amazement, they were all able to build an incremental pipeline. Back then, it was Twitter API, and now there's no more Twitter, and there's no more free API either. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know different times. But uh, then basically we realized, okay, uh, we have success with this interface. So this is what people can use and they're willing to use and learn kind of. It's a shallow learning curve enough that uh, people will just use it. So I guess people who came to the workshop, they came not necessarily to give you the feedback on the tool, but more like learn how to actually build uh, pipelines, right? Yes. So you showed them how to do this, but you also learned from how they use it. And uh, can you tell us more about this learning experience? Like how did you actually design the workshop in such a way that it was helpful for you too, not just for the attendees? Yeah, that's quite clever actually. So what um, we had some help actually in designing this uh, way of measuring, but One of the challenges was that when you're teaching, it's also hard to get live feedback from people. So I don't know how you manage it, but we figured that we actually need two people when teaching this course. One is teaching and the other is actually watching what the people do and helping. And uh, basically the second, we had checkpoints for every day. We had something like 20 checkpoints. So we split the two hours into 10 segments and we were asking people to react on Slack to the checkpoint message to say, okay, if everyone has managed to do this step, please give an emoji to this Slack message. So this way we could actually see, okay, how many people have done it, right? And we could... How much time it took, right? For each segment. Yeah, we weren't so much concerned about time. We were concerned if somebody doesn't get it, right? And if they cannot do it. And uh, ultimately we looked for completion rate. But then the role for the person, so one is teaching and then the other one is observing and helping. And the one that was helping, their task was to understand, to see the patterns, right? So I don't know, X percent of students had problems with that checkpoint, with completing that part of the task, right? They were basically moderating, right? So I was teaching and they were saying, okay, enough people have finished this step, let's move on to the next uh, section. Uh-huh. So if somebody's late, then... Yeah, I mean, we waited, right? And uh, some people asked questions. They were able to also get help live. Mm-hmm. So like if they had some errors. Mm-hmm. One important aspect, speaking of errors, was actually preparing the workshop on a environment that's the same for everyone. So we basically created like a code spaces environment where everything was the same. 
uh, GitHub Cospaces, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, we should use that for our courses too. So usually we just say, okay, just rent an instance and this is how you configure stuff on that instance. But then some of the students came up with this idea of, hmm, we can use Codespaces with the day two initiative. So what you did is you realized, okay, this thing is for free, right? Or like it costs, but little at some point. Yeah. And everyone has the same environment. Hmm, that's smart. And uh, the task was to get some JSON data from Twitter and build a warehouse of this data from this data, right? It was basically to get the data from Twitter. The people that we were teaching were, you know, just Python users. So many had not actually done a web request. So it was, you know, also teaching them to extract the data. So with authentication, pagination, concerns, right? So teaching kind of best practices of how to do this and also using the tool itself. And we didn't mention the name of the tool, right? Did we? We didn't. So what's the tool? Yes, it's uh, pretty simple. It's data load tool, so DLT for short. I often like to tell people, don't think of it as a data loading tool, think of it as a pipeline building tool. And the reason for this is, you know, because it's a developer tool made for developers to build pipelines easily. So while it does load data, it does so because you built a pipeline. Okay, that workshop that we talked about. So I think DLT already existed when the workshop happened, right? Yes. Basically, at that point, we had just created this simple interface on top of the engine. But, you know, DLT, what is DLT ultimately? A product is a kind of a moving target. What we didn't have at the time were docs. So you can imagine that without docs, a product is unusable. I would say docs are just as much part of the product as the code itself. And at that point, it was more like a research phase. It was very early. Okay. And as a result of that workshop, like what, what did you learn actually from this workshop? We learned less than we were hoping because basically the workshop went, we were expecting that people would have problems with various parts of the workshop. And it turned out that there were no problems. So what we did learn was that, you know, this is a good abstraction for people to use that is really easy to understand. And the next step is, you know, creating docs that uh, allow people to actually understand what is happening and use it. I see, because creating docs is a big investment, because once you have the docs and you change something in the tool, you need to redo all the docs, right? Exactly. And what you wanted to check if the abstractions you came up with are good enough so you can start building the docs. Exactly. How did you know that uh, you need to do it this way? It's not only about knowing, it's also, you know, you're limited in bandwidth. There's only so much you can do. And I can tell you it probably took us three months before our docs were actually at a level where people were able to use them. And another three months before they were at the level where people were saying, hey, your docs are pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quite a bit of negative feedback. The purpose of this workshop was to help you. You had limited resources and the purpose of the workshop was to help you figure out what to do next. Product market fit. Product market fit. So either you focus on making the engine better right now, right? Because like there are some checkpoints there, many people struggled. Mm -hmm. Or as it turned out that there were no problems with the actual code. And then for you, it was the good signal that, okay, now it's time to invest in docs, right? Exactly. So the way you can think about it is 
before you have product market fit, which I guess I will have to explain also what it is, uh, you should keep going towards product market fit. So product market fit is basically a point where your product is fitting the needs of the market. And you can generally tell by increasing adoption and people really wanting to use it, right? They say that one way to determine if you have product market fit is to take the solution away and see if anyone cries. If nobody cries, you don't have product market fit. Interesting. How would you take away the tool? Now let's try to do the same thing, but without the tool. And you see, if you see how people react, right? Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Can I give it back? Uh, for example, or, you know, you one way is you don't need to ask. You can see that it's used, for example, at the core of things, right? So, for example, we have an early adopter that decided to run the entire organization on DLT, the entire data stack. You know, so if you take it away, they're going to have to figure out how to do something else, but it would be a big pain because, you know, it solves a lot of problems currently. And that company that you mentioned, they knew you were an early stage startup and you were just experimenting with product market fit, did they? Yet they decided to build, to put DLT at the core of their processes. Like it's a bit risky, right? It depends who you are and how you perceive risk, right? So if you're a software engineer and you can analyze the code base that is open source and you decide that this is something that, you know, looks good to you, uh, that meets your criteria, then it's easy to make a decision because, you know, if something goes wrong, you can maintain this and you can keep using this. It's easier than writing from scratch, I think, right? Yeah. You can just keep a clone a copy of the code in yeah. your internal GitLab, whatever. And it's still easier than building a similar thing from scratch and then engineers so value in that because exactly. they can just open this thing and see, okay, well, it makes sense and then just use exactly. it. But if you're the kind of person who's rather like a tool user, like if you use a tool like Segment, for example, where you expect that everything is done for you and you just pay for it, then, you know, this would be too early stage for such a market. Mm -hmm. So for open source, it's different because engineers adopt a tool and then like maybe the management don't care, like as long as the problem is solved. Yes. Also depends on the engineer, right? Because if the engineer can handle the code base on their own, then they don't have a problem. But if you expect something to happen in the future to the open source project, then, you know, might not be a good bet. Okay. What do you actually do these days? And to, like at the beginning, because like you had a co-founder, you had other people. So what did you do at the beginning and how did your role change over time? So uh, my learning about roles in a founding a company is that it's very different compared to what you think. So while you might be able to work in your strength in some areas, there will also be a lot of things that need to be done in a company that are nobody's strength. And someone will have to do them. And it's going to be you because you're the last line of defense. But maybe your co-founder can do this. Yeah, or my co-founders, of course. Uh -huh. To somebody, you, either you or, or, or him, right? Exactly. And uh, basically what this means is that you need to figure out what needs to happen next, figure out some kind of way to do it, and then try to get help to do more of it in a better way if that pays off kind of. So I'm doing a lot of things that are not in my strength and kind of inventing what we should be doing. 
but I'm not trying to reinvent any flat tires. So I'm, you know, taking lots of cues from other people in the industry. So to be specific about what I'm doing right now, I'm actually heading the go-to-market and uh, strategy for our library, which means communicating, let's say, you could call it marketing in a way that actually helps the end user understand about your product and that is aligned with the strategy. So specifically, our strategy is to go for bottom-up adoption. We don't want to you know, be the solution that your non-data manager is buying because they think it builds them a warehouse and bakes them a cake. We want to be that actual developer tool that you will come across and you will go like, wow, this is so much better than doing all this manual junk myself. And you as a data engineer or former data engineer, I don't know if you can ever be former data engineer, but you as a, somebody who has done this many times, who can speak the same language as other data engineers, you can explain what th this thing is doing, right? Because you speak the same language which makes you a good, uh, a perfect fit for this position, right? Yes. And, you know, things like identifying the use cases for specific personas. So, for example, one of the, like, how do you reach audiences, right? You could go to where these audiences hang out. So, for example, like on Reddit or like in data engineering subreddit or on your Slack group. Or you could go to, let's say, other tool groups that these people use, right? And then if you go to this other tool group, you want to figure out, okay, do we have a use case that this audience is interested in? So mm -hmm. you know, then you kind of need to figure out what they're doing, what they like, how they think, what problems they have, and then offer them a solution for that so they can relate to the content and maybe try it. And maybe a good example, I recently came to your office, you hosted a meetup with DuckDB. And I guess this is a good example of other tool groups because you can just hang out in the DuckDB Slack and see what kind of problems people have and see if DLT can solve some of these problems, right? And if it can, then what do you actually do? Like, hey, have a look at DLT or you just take note and then see if you can improve these cases. Well, I would say DuckDB is a bit of a special case because they have enabled us to do something, you know, like... Uh, not slightly better, but zero to one. So specifically, because we're a library that runs in a notebook, and so are they, this means that we have the opportunity to run together in places where uh, data pipelines and data engineers previously didn't go. And uh, this means we can, for example, create a simple demo on a collab that just runs. It enables lots of easy testing and easy adoption for us, also for development, right? Because DLT will generate schemas before the database. So if it's DuckDB or something else like BigQuery, uh, DLT doesn't care. You'll have the same schema. So you can literally go for development between DuckDB and something else. And yeah, that event, you know, we didn't do any content there. We just hosted it. But, you know, we have a DuckDB destination. We have a mother Duck destination. And we are kind of their recommended solution for loading, which is helping. All the DuckDB users know that, uh, like they sh they recommend DLT to use. Like if you have this specific use case, this specific problem, use DLT. Yes. So there is, I think there is somewhere maybe in the, I don't know if we actually mentioned in the documentation, but they did distribute us to their audience, like in a newsletter, for example. We have some demos we did together. 
how, how did you convince them to do this? Because like this is interesting. What you have is mutually beneficial partnership, if I yeah. may to say this way. So you they help you because you can run both things locally, so you don't need to set up BigQuery, whatever. And then for them, you solve some of the problems. So then they can easily see the benefits of DuckDB, right? So how did you find this partnership and how did you actually not convince them, but how did they end up doing this mention? Like, did you ask them, hey, can you feature us in the newsletter or they themselves wanted to do this or how did it work? You can think about this like dating, right? So how do you move on from dating to marriage? It's a process. It's not a one-off point, right? <laughs> and um, I would say it was incremental. So partly, you know, we just added DuckDB because it was beneficial for us. So we added it as a destination. We started using it in our demos. Then we came to them and told them, hey, guys, look, it's a super useful solution for us. And we also align with your product principles. So our product principle is uh, among one of them is being anti-platform. So just being a library that doesn't plan to take over your entire stack. So this worked very well also with uh, DuckDB because what this means, if you're not trying to take over things, it means you're trying to integrate into things. And it means that you can have healthy partnerships with the rest of the ecosystem, which DuckDB also does very well. Okay. So what are your plans for the future? So we are almost uh, done closing a fundraising round. So this kind of will open a new chapter in the life of our company. And that chapter will be will include working on a paid solution. So like I was telling you about go-to-market fit, what you want to do before you take money is find product market fit. Because if you don't do that, investors don't care about your product market fit. They care about growth. They give you money because they want to get more money in return, right? Exactly. And if they don't see how their money will multiply, then they will not give you the money, right? Yes, it's very hard to raise money for just research, right? So basically, we got uh, product market fit with our library, and now we're working towards a paid solution. And that paid solution would be something complementary. So it wouldn't limit the library in any way. It would rather add to it. So right now, we're basically working on uh, user research to figure out better what this solution could be. We have, of course, some strong ideas, but we want to validate them before we just go out and build things. Mm. And uh, there are some other, let's say, open problems in the library space. So one of them is taking contributions. This is a hard problem because basically a community scales different than a company. So there can be a lot more people in the community but if you are open to contributions and they have to go through some company process you end up being a bottleneck and this wouldn't work basically it would put a lot of burden on us that we wouldn't be able to take at the moment so how to solve this problem maybe llms will be involved in the future the other problem that could be solved for a library would be you know a lot of people just want sources they don't want to build the pipeline from scratch and it's actually possible to generate many of these sources. But it's, again, not a very easy problem, not for everything. And it's also raising questions of, you know, utility, maintenance, distribution, and so on. So maybe we will also talk about this. And by that, you mean like, uh, let's say there's Twitter API. Well, it existed, but it's yeah. or GitHub API, right? And then what you say is like, 
you select GitHub as a source somewhere, you select destination, DuckDB, and then that's kind of it, right? You don't do anything. Yeah, so we've done several experiments in this direction. One of them is there's an open API standard. You might have heard of Swagger, for example, Swagger Docs for APIs. So basically, in this open API specification, you have almost all the information you need to wrap a lot, uh, an API. So you could generate the entire pipeline code from this specification. We actually have a demo on our website where our CTO does that from the Pokemon pipeline. And the generator is quite smart. It's uh, only Python rule-based. There's no LLM involved. But it will do things like, for example, understand that this is a list resource and this is a detail resource. And you first need to list and then get the detail for this entity or something like that. So it puts you in competition with uh, tools like Airbyte, right? Yeah, I would say they're a distant competitor. Like this is what they do. They have a bunch of sources, a bunch of destinations, and then like yes. they connect. So we don't really want to go, right? Airbyte is a platform. We'll never be a platform in that way. So even if we do offer some kind of orchestration, that is not our selling point. We don't want to be another five trend. And Airbyte currently is kind of trying to be another five trend. There is a question of uh, product market fit, right? So who is going to be building and maintaining these pipelines? And I would say we don't really compete with Airbyte in that way also because their builder is a UI-focused person. On the programming side, it's really hard to build with Airbyte. And we also don't want to, you know, put this source building necessarily on the community if not needed. And there are multiple ways in which you can do this. So like I was telling you about the open API standard, but there's also, you know, LLMs used for generating. And here we're actually uniquely positioned as well, because if you use GPT with docs and DLT docs, you can pretty easily get an end-to-end -end pipeline just by asking for it. This is, you know, possible because it's a library. If this was some kind of monolithic application, it would be much harder. Okay. So can you recommend any resource, book or course or something to our listeners about this topic? So if somebody wants to start what you did, create a product, open source product, what can they, from where can they learn? So unfortunately, there are no major simple resources that give you everything you need, but I can recommend reading about go-to-market and product market fit. So I read this book called From Survival to Thrival, The Enterprise Product Market Fit, which describes how you can go from a startup to building an enterprise-ready product, kind of. It's, uh, you know, for me as a data engineer, I never thought about things that way. And it was just a very big eye opener for me to understand that these topics exist and I should consider them, right? So I cannot necessarily recommend the book as being the authority, but it's definitely good to educate yourself on what is out there. From survival to thrival, right? Yes. This is a, like, a, you know, a something for dummies. It's like a series. Of uh, books, and this one is about product market fit. Okay, yeah, that's all we have time for today. So we are a bit like we took three more minutes than we should have. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining us today and sharing your experience. I'm really curious. I think last time we had an interview was two years ago, maybe slightly less. So we should definitely meet again, maybe in uh, oh, a yeah. year and a half, two, and see what changed 
Yes. So yeah, that would be pretty interesting. Okay, so thanks again for joining us today and thanks everyone for joining us today too. And yeah, have a great week ahead. Thank you, you too, Alexei. And see you yeah. on the podcast in a couple of years. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe earlier. Hope so. Yeah, okay, bye. Bye.